0: hi everyone uh, and welcome to uh, today's forum on um, uh, which is the second of three forums on reimagining Singapore with change makers in Singapore now this series of forum is part of a larger project of the Institute of Policy Studies on reimagining Singapore where we look at how we can achieve happiness progress, prosperity and progress for Singapore in 2030 and beyond like the first forum, Today we will invite our guests to tell us what they have been doing in their own domains of change, um, the changes they hope to see in the next decade, um, and their reflections on the processes uh, and factors required to bring about positive social changes. This series will contribute to the final report on reimagining Singapore. I am uh, Natalie Pang and I am faculty member at the the Department of uh, Communications and New Media at NUS. And prior to that, I was Senior Research Fellow at IPS. I am going to be your moderator today, uh, to receive and ask all the questions you have, as well as to facilitate the conversation with our panelists over the next one one and a half hours or so. Now, before we start, uh, just some housekeeping announcements. Uh, Please note that this session is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded on the IPS website and Facebook page later after uh, this forum ends. So um, while the forum is going on, please submit your comments and questions at any time uh, through our Facebook comment section. We will also try to answer and attend to your uh, questions, as many of them as we can. Uh, Now that we are done with housekeeping, uh, let me introduce the topic of our forum today. Now the latest report from IPCC might concern many of us with uh, very clear messages that urgent actions are required to deal with the emergencies. They are already here in our climate and environment, but sustainability and is also very much about social sustainability. The United Nations, for instance, uh, identifies reducing in- inequality and um, promoting sustainable social communities as some of the key sustainable development goals. I also remember a time, probably more than two decades ago, uh, when I. Spent about three weeks being part of a team of bird watchers and researchers studying biodiversity in um, Sulawesi, Indonesia. And one of the biggest takeaways for me was really about uh, uh, how it is so crucial for us to also understand and tackle that partnership and sometimes tensions uh, between human communities, uh, their aspirations for livability, and um, the natural environment. So what does sustainability looks like for Singapore right now and in the near future? We will tackle these questions with our forum this afternoon. And with that, I'm really delighted to introduce four change makers that will be uh, speaking on our panel today. Uh, Ms. Lastrina Hamid is co-founder of the Singapore Youth for Climate Action, a network of Singaporeans working for climate action. In 2015, she participated at the UN conference uh, in Paris representing YANGO, uh, which stands for Youth Non Governmental Organizations. Lastrina has been doing a lot of voluntary work uh, to help the environment since 2009 and is also a recipient of the National Environmental Agency NEA Eco Friends Awards in 2016. Next, we have Mr. Yashad Ramdan. Uh, who is the co-founder of Young Sustainable Impact Southeast Asia, uh, short for YSI Southeast Asia, whose mission is to empower Southeast Asian youth to solve sustainability challenges through annual innovation programs. So more recently, YSI Southeast Asia has been incubating startups in the food and uh, agriculture, uh, circular economy, as well as green, clean green um, and green uh, energy spaces. Yashad also hosts um, co-hosts a, a podcast called Impact Insight, where he interviews founders, funders and makers in the green innovation space. Uh, next, we have uh, Mr. Chai Ing-zo, is known to many of us, um, and he is a licensed Singapore tour guide and director of Citizen Adventures, where he leads uh, walking tours of um, local communities and organizes initiatives to address social issues. Uh, Citizen Adventures actually began as Gelang Adventures in 2014 and um, uh, Geylang Adventures organized activities to promote sustainable development of the area and its community to support low-wage uh, migrant workers. And um, he has also organized uh, many activities to, in an attempt to build social divides between um, migrant workers and locals. Uh, in 2019, Gelang Adventures became Citizen Adventures uh, to broaden efforts to serve the marginalised. Uh, there's been quite a number of signature events uh, and programmes, uh, and this includes Back Ali uh, Barbers, uh, Majula Belanja, uh, Adventurous Fellowship, and as well as the COVID-19 Migrant Support Coalition. For all his uh, work, INZO was also awarded the Singapore Youth Award in 2017, and was also featured at the National Day Parade in 2018. Last but not least, um, we have Mr. Larry Yong, who is Executive Director of Participate in Design, a nonprofit design organization that helps neighborhoods and public institutions design community-owned spaces and solutions. He is a strong advocate for participatory and community-centric approaches in the design of um, cities and neighborhoods. Now, Larry has an impressive portfolio of participatory-based works uh, spanning multiple themes from neighborhood planning, public space design, community art installations. This year, uh, he was also named a World City Summit Young Leader. Uh, So congratulations to you, Larry. Uh, I began by introducing this forum as a conversation. So Ibas reminding that this is not just a conversation between all of us on this forum but it's also a conversation with you. So uh, once again, I would like to invite all of you to leave your comments and questions using the Facebook comments section during the forum. Hi, Lastrina, Ursat, uh, Into, and Larry. Thank you so much for taking time uh, amidst your busy schedule to join us this afternoon. Uh, let me start with the first question for all of you uh, while uh, our audience um, and everyone that's listening are uh, preparing their comments and questions. Uh, now, my first question is really uh, to invite you to tell us um, about the most significant changes that have taken place in your area of work or activism over the, over the past years uh, and uh, what kinds of roles that you or your organization play in that. We're trying to understand what change making uh, entails. Uh, Maybe we can start with Lastrina. Now Lastrina, you've been involved in the climate action scene for some time now and also took part in the UN Paris conference on climate change. What are the changes you've observed and how did you play a part in them?
1: Thank you, Natalie. Um, So maybe first and foremost, thank you IPS and Natalie for having me in this session. I am grateful to be part of this panel of um, People talking about change making in Singapore and sharing my perspective on sustainability and livability. Uh, uh, so, perhaps to give some background context for my response to that question, uh, allow me to briefly share what Singapore Youth for Climate Action is. Uh, so, SYCA was co founded in 2015 by a group of friends just before the climate conference in Paris. And over the years, we focused on building climate awareness and engaging youths through talks. Uh, workshops and various community outreach events. So, to respond to your questions, Natalie, um, I'd like to bring us all onto a common page first, giving a macro view of things before I move into the micro uh, perspective. So it doesn't matter what your prior knowledge about climate change is, Um, what I want to highlight in today's session really is that, you know, there is no doubt we are experiencing a climate crisis. Um, Like what Natalie mentioned in the opening statement earlier, and I'm not sure how many people have seen the news about the latest IPCC report, uh, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released uh, last week's. Um, I'll share some links in the FB comment session uh, later. But for now, you know, I'll just like to take some headline statements to share with you what's happening right, in terms of the global climate crisis. So it is mentioned that uh, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land, and that many changes due to the past and future greenhouse gas emissions are irreversible. So I just wanted to highlight that Uh, you know there is this major emphasis on what's happening globally and a reminder that the world needs to tackle this urgently and at scale. So tying this back to this question like what's happening with the climate crisis, and then what's happening locally, you know, with last year, the government submitting our enhanced documents um, to as part of our commitments to the international treaties. Uh, this year, with Singapore Parliament declaring climate change as a global emergency, um, this year also with the Singapore government announcing Singapore Green Plan 2030, which is a whole-of-nation movement to advance Singapore's national agenda on sustainable development. The way I see it, there are definitely changes in terms of how much emphasis is being made about the climate crisis and its impacts on Singapore. And also, additionally, with all these news and social discourse online about the climate crisis, there's also this change in expectations, I feel. Um, There's this heightened expectations of what people want, what they want the governments and businesses to do to reduce emissions more. Um, And with that, it has changed the way SYCA as a ground-up initiative wants to do things. Uh, So previously I mentioned we focus on building awareness. Obviously with all these things happening, this is not enough. Um, And the question of how might we create tangible outcomes and impacts is something we are currently exploring in our restructuring efforts. And to address the last part of your question, um, this idea of change-making where we take actions to transform society, to me, it's very fluid. Um, Society changes, context changes, environment changes, the kind of actions we need to take changes as well. So to me, there is no right or wrong response to change making as long as it is for the betterment of society. And as much as I want to have a good outcome, which I think is a very uh, Singapore-centric kind of Uh, default mode to have. Uh, I'd also want to have a good process going about this, and I see stakeholder engagement as a necessary mechanism to allow us to achieve this better Singapore vision.
0: Thank you so much, Lastrina. That was excellent. Um, I really like your point about how change-making is fluid, um, and uh, your point also about how uh, society changes uh, and aspirations also change, right? Uh, next, uh, I'd like to invite Earshad um, to uh, share uh, and respond to my question. Now, Earshad, you've been doing a lot of work with YSI, uh, Southeast Asia, also, um, especially in the context of uh, innovating uh, and incubating, actually, um, uh, yeah, youth, right, um, in uh, coming up with innovations uh, and uh, innovative solutions uh, in response to Uh, uh, issues uh, associated with food um, and um, agriculture, clean energy. Uh, Would you mind sharing more about that?
2: Sure. So, thanks Natalie and thanks IPS for having me. So, maybe I can give a very brief overview about uh, what Young Sustainable Impact Southeast Asia is, what we've done. Um, So, basically YSI Southeast Asia, the flagship activity that we do uh, in 2018, 2019, 2020, is a five month long innovation program. How it works is that uh, participants go through a four and a half month long program online where they work with either their teams locally or teams within the region uh, remotely. And after that whole four and a half month process, we actually fly them down fully funded to Singapore where they work on advancing their solutions. And they also have the opportunity to pitch to uh, impact investors, uh, corporate um. What do you call that, corporate representatives, etc. Um, and the reason why we did this uh, going into um, 2018 when we first started the organisation is that we understood the need for uh, activism as well as work to be done on the policy level. But we also recognised that there needed to be an organisation that focused on uh, allowing youth to innovate more from a uh, private sector perspective. So, how do you start entities? in order to drive specific points of impact. So we started with a very um, very optimistic point of view that uh, so long as you had knowledge about the innovation process and you had a very clear idea of what the issue you wanted to solve was, uh, you'll be able to solve it. Um, we had mixed levels of success, especially in our early year. Uh, eventually, uh, fast forward to 2020, Uh, We actually focused in on food and agriculture, clean energy and the circular economy, primarily because a lot of people within our team uh, had a specific, um, what do you call that, a a specific heart for environmental issues, which was not where I came from when I started with this organization. My background in the medical space, I wanted to work on SDG3 through innovation. Um, I had a change of heart as I worked along with these people and eventually that's where our focus kind of came in so um, I think that over time uh, within our organization that's the main change that happened like we started from all aspects of sustainability all 17 sustainable development goals ranging from the environment to social as well as governance uh, to finding a, a niche of sorts for environmental issues and not just having a general innovation program but also allowing, Uh, participants who go through our program to understand the nuances behind trying to drive uh, solutions related to the environment in order to reduce pollutions, reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, as well as to ensure that people continue to have uh, resources in order to continue to survive. Uh, But this is actually a larger trend that we do see uh, from... Uh, different other programs like ours, uh, they are starting to go from, oh, let's solve everything related to SDGs, let's find a niche and let's actually try to drive uh, solutions towards them. Yeah. And finally, uh, just one other point to note, uh, this um, decision for us to actually focus in on the environmental challenges rather than the social-related uh, challenges is not exactly an easy one, especially if we, we were to choose a data-driven approach because when we first ran our program in 2018, we had uh, 800... Uh, applicants of the 800, we allowed them ch- to choose three SDGs that they wanted to work on, uh, 400 of them chose uh, um, quality education, and 300 of them chose good health and well-being. So we were actually making a decision in spite of the, dis- the data that we were given. And in fact, from 2019 to 2020, we had a drop in applicants, but uh, we did that because we wanted to focus in on the environmental uh, related um, issues. Yep. So that's
3: all for me. Thanks,
0: Natalie. Thank you, Irshad. Um, actually, uh, before I invite uh, Inzo to speak, actually there is a question uh, that just came up and I thought it's uh, uh, quite apt that I asked it here. So this is a question from Mary Thomas um, who asked, uh, we talk, there's so much talk about climate change, right? Uh, there are, actually, you know, This is not the first time now. We have multiple actually reports uh, that actually uh, send the same message, which is code great, right? Um, uh, But there's so much talk um, and, uh, but governments still actually are probably, um, I guess talking about economic developments and wealth, right? Uh, So Mary Thomas asks, no one seems bothered about climate action, but there is a lot of talk about climate, right? uh, what do you think, right? Uh, is it really uh, um, the case, right? Uh, there is actually more talk than action.
2: Uh, Sabrina, do you want to take a go at it or do you want me to respond first?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, just to have a better understanding, I, I uh, replied to Mary's comments asking maybe like what's her uh, idea of what climate action looks like. Um, so I'm not sure if Mary, uh, if you saw that, uh, but Maybe while waiting for Mary's response, um Richard, you can share first. Yeah. yeah.
2: Sure. So um I would like to question the premise actually, whether there's uh like okay, not so much question the premise, but more uh kind of dig into the premise of the question a little bit, whether or not um there's a lot of tech talk but no action. So at least uh like from a governmental perspective, like at uh, we, we are seeing uh, initiatives from the clean energy perspective as well as waste management perspective, which admittedly are not perfect, but uh, there are things that are happening in that space. And on the ground, uh, when talking to both entrepreneurs within Singapore as well as the rest of Southeast Asia, there is uh, a little bit of a difficult uh, conversation that's happening uh, within uh, amongst peers as to whether or not uh, things that we do on the ground are uh, actually
4: going to move the needle or anything, but... I
2: think uh, one thing that I do observe from entrepreneurs within this space at least I'm not going to talk about the wider public nor am I going to talk about the government but from people who are taking action silently there is a uh, very um, profound and pretty respectable heroism uh, with regards to trying to push forward uh, um, solutions that some some of them actually a lot of them actually know are imperfect and don't actually cover everything but the fact is that, Uh, All of these imperfect solutions done by people one after the other, um, it might not be. uh, It might not result in the change that we're looking for. But we still need a lot more people pushing at these solutions one after the other, after the other. And I do have a certain degree of um, optimism, at least, that uh, people are talking, but they're also trying to do. Just because the trying might not be perfect doesn't mean uh, I. That that is all from from my perspective, from the entrepreneurial side anyway. Uh, Lester, do you want to have a go? I think you have another perspective on this.
1: Um, thanks, Hirshad. Um, I think for me, I'm quite interested to find out what Mary's um, idea of climate action is because I think like you mentioned your perspective from the social entrepreneurship and private sector side of things. Um, for me, the way I look at things, it's usually from the macro perspective. And so if I were to look at what the Singapore government has submitted to the UN, and I'm just looking at like, okay, maybe I'll just look at the uh, one document right nationally determined contributions document um the previous one that we set in 2015 we pledged that by 2030 thirty will reduce emissions intensity by 30 uh, percent from 2005 level and subsequently uh what we submitted last year was like an enhanced version where we say that okay you know like we aim to half by 2030 and then peak uh by 2050 and achieve zero emissions so if i'm just looking at that macro perspective and i see that there is um, efforts to enhance our national strategies um, to me that is a an effort by itself to take climate action and so then when I look at the individual um, actions that's been happening in terms of like climate mitigation and climate adaptation I think definitely more things are happening now um, and like what you mentioned if we look at specific groups of people, people are also trying to address um, climate issues based on what they can do, right? So um, one example that I like to use this year is what's happening in the curriculum scene. Um, So with Singapore Green Plan 2030, for example, the geography department under the MOE curriculum uh, unit, uh, sorry, geography unit under the curriculum department, uh, actually tried to integrate the Singapore Green Plan into their Uh, curriculum and then they posted it out uh, on an online resource which actually many other people can access as well and i thought that was such a nice move to make just-in-time lesson plans so that more people are aware what's going on and so that teachers themselves are empowered to have certain knowledge to then uh, communicate and translate that knowledge to their students Um, so i'm just like looking at that macro perspective i'm looking at um, specific things that's happening on the ground and um, maybe even online, the kind of um, discourse that we're having online now. There's so many Instagram accounts um, advocating for climate action. Um, there are accounts uh, utilizing creative illustrations to talk about climate change. I always like to use the example of Earth to Dockers, uh, The Weird and Wild. I think they do great work. Um, and in fact, I think two days ago, The Weird and Wild had an online IG live with Dr. Winston Chow, who's one of the contributors for IPCC report. So if I'm just looking at it from that perspective, there's also that individual um, action that people are taking to highlight these news to more people, right? Um, So yeah, I'm just coming from that perspective where I see there's so many things happening um, that I think it would be unfair to say we are not taking action. Uh, Maybe, maybe, Governments or like any entities are not taking action um, based on the kinds of expectations we the individual have uh, But I think if you look at it from that overall perspective things are definitely gaining momentum uh, Thank you
0: Lastrina and Iyashat, I think you both highlighted really important points right Yashad uh, you pointed out like the role of actually innovation and um, actually uh, yeah Lastrina uh, I think you, Thank you so much for all these examples, right? Uh, I think what you also articulated is how there is an aspiration, and there are actually multiple examples of uh, things happening, right? Uh, uh, you, know, you know, on different fronts. Uh, next, actually, uh, I would like to turn to Intel. Uh, I've been a big fan of Intel's work, uh, you know, especially in terms of bridging divides um, and also inspiring many of us to rethink how we think about. Uh, uh, what is our community uh, and how we think about, uh, you know, um, people in our community in a much more inclusive way, right? So, until, uh can I invite you to share, right, and respond to my very first question, which is, uh, you know, changes you've seen and, um, you know, what kind of role you've been, what kind of work you've been doing in response to that? Sure.
5: Thanks, Nestle, and uh, thanks so much, ITS, for having me. Uh, I'm going to keep my introduction really short and sweet because I love uh, the questions that are coming in and also the discourse that we are having on the panel uh, with just Lashrina and Urshad uh, lined up uh, for their climate section. So I'm going to offer another perspective to the context of sustainability and uh, a bit more context as to how I got into this space. So I used to uh, study tourism uh, and I was in uh, Murdoch University when I first got exposed to this uh, word for sustainability. And it was used in the context of development. Uh, And for many of us uh, in the tourism sector, uh, it was also uh, used in a very uh, thrown all around kind of fashion. Uh, A lot of the sustainable initiatives could be also appear to be tokenistic or greenwashing. Uh, But I think at the root uh, of what we studied was the meaning of also sustainable development. And what stuck for me is uh, the the definition of uh, stewarding existing resources Uh, and also for future generations after us. Uh, And that that got me thinking about my own neighborhood that I live in, uh, which is Geilang. uh, And that gave birth to Geilang Adventures in 2013. So the main premise of the tours that we conduct uh, today, not just in Geilang, but three other uh, tours that we do, the main premise is really about looking at these uh, communities, looking at these environments, as social ecosystems, I think in true sustainability, uh, fashion. When you look at existing resources, uh, it's not just about the environmental resources that we have to steward, but then it's also the social uh, and economic resources that uh, our generation, uh, our leaders, and us as individuals, uh, whether it's in our workplace or at home, have to steward as well. And I think that was uh, the premise that got me thinking deeper about how I could use the medium of tours to present that uh, to people who who join me on my tours. Uh, and today, Geilang is uh, uh, known for its negative stereotypes, uh, and many people go to enjoy the good food there. Uh, but for me, it's really a place that is life deeply personal to me, uh, and also because of the close interactions uh, that I've had with my neighbours that enabled me to have these perspectives and worldview. And therefore, today is uh, my agenda to share uh, with more Singaporeans about the lives of uh, one group that's predominantly seen in every part of Singapore but not really heard of, represented, uh, which is the lowest migrant workers amongst us. Uh, and that started from uh, the community in Geylang. Uh, today we see uh, also how the pandemic has affected uh, this population. So the main premise of uh, sustainability in terms of our social uh, and labor and workforce, it's really how do we steward uh, this generation of uh, uh, workers that we are so dependent on uh, and many Singaporeans think that these workers need the jobs that they have in Singapore when actually it's also uh, two ways, it's interdependent. And that's why in social ecosystems we have symbiotic relationships uh, and therefore uh, when we identify this symbiosis uh, we perceive uh, the rightful and uh, justified uh, pay, uh, welfare and also attitudes that we uh, see the labor and appreciate the labor that they do. Uh, and that's one of the learning points that I've taken uh, from the definition of sustainability since 2013. Uh, and that has helped scope uh, the, the other tours that I do today as well. So looking forward to the dialogue and also uh, sharing with the other young people here uh, what that looks like. Thank you, Natalie.
0: Thank you so much, Injil. Um, okay, there are actually a number of questions that are coming, I'd love to return to them. But uh, before that, I really uh, want to invite uh, Larry. Uh, now, Larry, when I think of the word sustainability, uh, it means long-term change, right? Uh, that is That carries on. And one keyword, or, or, or rather two keywords associated with that is really uh, persuasion, engagement, um, and uh, participation of everyone that's involved. Um, so you've been doing a lot of work at uh, PID, Participate in Design. Can I invite you to share more about the work of Participate in Design, uh, especially in terms of uh, the changes right, uh, that you've been actually, um, um, yeah, been a part of right, uh, in the past few years.
3: Thank you, Natalie. And of course, uh, thank you IPS for having me today. So um, I-, I will cut this short because I really want to discuss more on the questions. So um, any- anyway, PID started in 2013. And actually back in 2013, you know, when people talk about community engagement or citizen engagement, back then it was really a very foreign term, right? Like engagement, Singapore, why do we need to engage? The government can do everything, right? And I think that's why PID started, because we really want to challenge the notion that, you know, the government and agencies is not a know-it-all. You know, people can play a bigger role if they were given that platform. So I think since 2013, you know, um, in participate in design, We have been trying very hard to really rethink the way we do design or rethink the way we plan our cities. Can we take a more citizen-centric approach, you know, in neighborhood designs or even art creation or public space planning? And that was how PID started. And and I think I'm just very heartened that over the years, I think um, the agencies, you know, have seen the work that we have done. And uh, I think they have also very convinced like I think, not just us, but other grassroots organizations on how do we do citizen engagement and, and the impact it could have in the, on the community. And I think that have also guided um, policy changes over the years for the government to say, you know what? I think it's time we should really stop seeing our citizens as just consumers, um, but can they be collaborators? And can we work something along with them? And I think in recent years, uh, we have seen a shift in that. Um, you know, in terms of making spaces more sustainable, right? And I think in terms of making the design more relatable to communities, I think even URA and, you know, HDB and many other agencies out there have really started to take a more participatory approach uh, in terms of planning. And I think that is a good thing to see uh, over the years. And, um, and I think, of course, last but not least, you know, what is change making, right? How to make it sustainable. For me, it is very simple, you know, really just not, just do the way things are but always question ourselves if this is the right way to do it and you know how can we make it better and I think that it's because of this constant questioning at PID and I think that's why I think um, you know things are changing and, and I hope more young people today in this forum can also question our policies and our leaders you know what exactly will make the country move forward in 2030 yeah and I think I'll pass the time back over to you Natalie and I'm happy to talk more later.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Larry, Uh, and thanks everyone for sharing about your work. Uh, I'd like to turn to um, uh, this question by uh, Tian Wu, right? And I really think there are multiple facets to this question. Uh, And uh, the question is, how do we ensure that discussion on uh, sustainability and livability address inequality, um, uh, if what's good for Singapore sometimes means what's good for uh, the majority? Or, what is good in terms of economic priorities? And I I think all of you actually um, can address different parts of this question, right? Uh, Especially in terms of um, how do we actually include um, uh, sometimes the the minority, right? Uh, And minority voices, uh, right? Uh, And also uh, actually thinking about their needs, their aspirations in a more inclusive way. Um, and I think uh, Lustrina and Rashad, I would like to invite you to also uh, actually reflect on your work on uh, in the you know um, climate change sustainability space, right? In, in terms of how do we actually uh, move forward, right, with uh, the discussion on sustainability, livability, to also address uh, issues associated with inequality. Uh, maybe I could uh, invite uh, into uh, to respond first.
5: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Natalie. Um, so, hi, Tien. Thanks for your question. Uh, definitely agree that uh, we really need to do more uh, to shift our economic priorities to one that is more uh, equal and to also consider the ones amongst us who are more mar- marginalized or less equal or less represented in conversations that we have uh, that determine uh, how these corporations operate and. Uh, So for, I I guess the context of migrant workers in Singapore, I think the pandemic has created an opportunity uh, where the discourse of migrant workers uh, and the level of uh, policy change and the needs of uh, how the pandemic is uh, needing to be managed have changed what many advocates uh, for migrant workers uh, have been demanding uh, for the past years. Uh, But I think at the the root of it, we have also identified how the economics of uh, the lives of migrant workers does Trump. and at this point of time, uh, for many of the uh, roles that migrant workers play, uh, it's kind of uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place, uh, where there is a, quote, cascading effect uh, of the lack of migrant workers who are coming into Singapore uh, on to our construction and development, uh, and also to the lives of all of us in the near future. So we are seeing definitely a shift in priorities with the pandemic. I think that has created an opportunity for the conversation of migrant workers uh, specific to uh, not just the welfare and uh, the kinds of food that they eat or transportation that they take to work. But I think deep-rooted uh, the question of uh, the role of migrant workers in Singapore in the future uh, and one in 2030 coupled with uh, the silver tsunami uh, where one four in Singapore Will be above the age of 65. And these are deep questions uh, that we have yet to answer as a society. Uh, with this interdependence of migrant workers uh, becoming more dependency, uh, how do we then see uh, favorable uh, and just work conditions for them to uh, continue uh, staying in Singapore and also to continue remaining an at attractive destination uh, for migrant workers? Uh, one of it, uh, one of the, the points in history that comes to my mind you know when I think of this position that we are in uh, was how Singapore with its diversity of uh, any migrants really enabled us to be where we are today' diversity of talents, uh, inputs and uh, resources that they brought to the table. And I think uh, in, in times of uh, scarcity, many of the migrants were able to organize in clans and associations, uh, even you know building the first hospitals and schools in Singapore. And I think that's also something that we uh, lack, the lack of organic uh, community-led planning, uh, the lack of uh, able, able, abilities self-organized, uh, and also to contribute in effective and meaningful ways. I think that's something that the migrant workers community uh, has a lot to contribute, but yet to have uh, find such platforms to do so. Uh, so that's really what I think uh, the, the, the balancing of this equation of uh, uh, inequality could look like. And how uh, in Singapore, a rebalancing and reorienting of economic priorities could also happen in that way.
0: Yeah, thanks, So I really like your point about uh, diversity because uh, if we don't address uh, issues associated with inequality, then um, we can risk compromising um, diversity, right? Um, uh, so, uh, Larry, can I invite you to talk about this uh, as well? Because I think uh, you may have a lot to share, you know, in terms of. Um, yeah, actually, it, it's, it's a nice segue to a question specifically for you about uh, best practices uh, in uh, participatory uh, processes.
3: Yeah, so I, I would really say that you know participatory processes you know right now if we look at how you know our mainstream government agencies are doing it you know most of our discussion is in English for example. Right. I understand there are constraints over there, but I think in the engagement that PID does, for example, in more mature estates, you know, our design workshops and community workshops are often conducted in different languages. You know, we have dialects, we have Mandarin speaking groups, So that, even seniors who are, you know, typically not very good in language could contribute. And I think one thing we have also noted is that, you know, a lot of times uh, we always have, uh, I mean, Injo touched on the topic on foreign workers, but I think I would like to touch on the topic on the senior population, which are also another group of, um, you know, community that are often overlooked, you know, because a lot of assumption is that, you know, oh, seniors do not know anything, or you know their thoughts don't count. You know, I mean, sometimes there are people or even policymakers who may have that kind of... um, you know, uh, misconception, but if you actually go to the ground, and you actually get the officers to talk to the seniors, you know, that's where the magic happens, you know, you know, by just having, you know, having a comfortable environment, or the different languages that suit to the seniors needs, actually, they are not just consumers, you know, they are collaborators with very good ideas to actually make the plan work, but it's just that they need that platform. So again, I would just think that, like, you know, in terms of, you know, making participatory approaches or, you know, engagement more inclusive, you know, rather than just limiting to one language. I think that is one positive practice that I think I would say could consider for the future. And I think also, um, you know, really dare to touch on sensitive topics. You know, I think I agree with Injo. you know, certain topics sometimes, you know, we are very afraid to discuss. But I think moving forward as a society, you know, why government are not discussing this topic is because They have the assumption that people, you know, do not want to talk about it. But I think if the voice and the interest is big enough and people have proved to ourselves that, you know, we are mature enough as a society to talk about these topics, I think that is when participatory design or effective community engagement can happen. And I think we just need to have more faith in our citizens that, you know, um, we know what is good for our country and society and we know how to respect one another. And I think that's how a democratic society should work. And I think uh, in 2030, I hope that Singapore will be mature enough for us to move forward with this form of community engagement.
0: Yeah, thank you, Larry. Um, Okay, actually, um, uh, we we have some more questions. Uh, uh, Let me just uh, cut to them. Um, uh, Actually, for uh, both Lastrina and Rashad, there are actually two related questions. Let me just ask them uh, together. Uh, So one question is from Irene. uh, which is how do, in your opinion, right, uh, working with uh, youths in your own work, how do you think uh, the youth of today wish to see the sustainable development uh, goals get implemented? Right? Um, Feel free to respond to that question. Um, and uh, there is also, I guess, um, uh, and uh, another uh, question about uh, actually education of uh, climate change. Uh, And this is a question from Ryan. Um, What is, in your opinion uh, and in your uh, own experience, what is being done to educate uh, older adults about climate change, right? Um, uh, The sense is that, yeah, uh, older adults may not be as connected uh, to the issue
1: uh, on hand. So uh, maybe Lastrina, you could start first. Thanks, Natalie. Um, I'm just looking through at uh, looking through Irene's question, right? So, how do youths today demand SDGs implemented? Um, so, I do have to say, when I'm interacting with youths one on one, it's very rare that people specifically say, uh, "Hey, what are your thoughts on SDGs? Let's do something about it." Um, although yes, in the conversations, um, I know that you know people are talking about climate actions, partnerships, access to um, clean water, sanitation, health, and all those issues. So I think specifically, if I'm looking at um, specific issues within the 17 SDG goals, um, there are use. Okay, may- maybe because Irene, you're using the word demand, right? So when I look at the word demand, also um, I'm thinking of specific climate groups. Um, And uh, if you're uh, online on a a browser, uh, do check out SG Climate Rally. Um, So maybe I can share this in the uh, chat uh, later as well. Uh, But if you look through SG Climate Rally's uh, website,
0: Okay, I think lastrina has seemed to have uh, be frozen uh, on our screen. Um, uh, so while waiting for her to come back, maybe uh, Irshad, uh would you like to chime in? So the first question is on youth um, and how they like their SDGs to be implemented. The second question is about uh, uh, the elderly, the older adults and uh, their sustainable practices.
2: Sure. So um, maybe I'll start with the youth question and later on go to the adult question and maybe if there's a bit of time I would like to touch on the previous question as well which is the uh, whole thing about um, inequality uh, but only if I have time. So for youth right, um, I think there's a a difference between um, how to to put in very broad strokes like the millennial generation versus the gen z Uh, generation kind of deals with uh, climate related issues at least from what I've experienced so for people uh, within the millennial generation or maybe slightly younger uh, generally the tendency is to have some level of hope and a little bit of anger and to to the point where um, since they are in a position where they have the resources they have some level of knowledge They like we see a lot of them actually try to do something about it either through a company or
4: raising uh, awareness, doing their own uh, different uh,
2: initiatives, at least within the space that I reside in. Uh, amongst the Gen Z, the uh, the picture is a little bit sadder, uh, if I were to just kind of be blunt. Um, it kind of moves uh, through the stages of grief somewhat, where it's gone from anger to a certain level of either acceptance or hopelessness. And that's something that is quite alarming. And I, I kind of feel that the entire question of you demanding SDGs be implemented is not really the, the way it is right now. Like it, It's come to the point where like they're just waiting to see what's going to happen. And that's kind of heartbreaking, uh, to, to be honest with you. And on the flip side, when looking at the uh, older adults, is the question really about education or is the question about whether or not they have uh, the will to do what needs to be done, especially those that are in business leadership positions as well as like, other uh, positions they didn't get there because they didn't know their stuff uh, it's just a matter of whether this is something that is a uh, priority for them that they actually want to look into so that uh, I feel that if they want to know anything about the climate like the IPCC report is not just a report it's a uh, like there are elements of it that are fully um, not, not even uh, animated like there are like interactive sections sections of them they can actually do some self-study on and there are multiple multiple groups that are trying to do uh, awareness raising like they all, all they need to do is just reach out it's not a matter of whether the education is accessible it's just a matter of whether they are willing to um, actually engage with it uh as for the point on uh, as a point that raised up, uh, it's a hard question but the, the way i do want to engage with it is from a climate perspective
4: so uh, within at least
2: uh, the, the team that I work with, and I think in general, uh, for people within the climate space, there are two main approaches that uh, people can take when it comes to addressing climate-related issues. Uh, broad broad categories are the uh the mitigation strategies as well as adaptation strategies. Um, we are still currently in the like honeymoon phase where we believe that uh there are certain mitigation strategies that can be done in order to um. Make the effects of climate change not as bad. Uh, it is debatable as to whether or not that's actually true. I don't really want to go into that debate. But in terms of the equity of uh, the effect of
5: trying to engage
2: with mitigation related strategies, um, you can argue that uh, putting resources and effort into making sure that climate change is mitigated is something that is going to be um, useful for all of society and, like, Therefore, putting in effort and resources into trying to do something about that is going to have a wider societal uh, impact as a whole. So you can argue that uh,
4: focusing on
2: climate-related issues is inclusive. Uh, When it comes to adaptive strategies, on the other hand, and the reason why uh, there is uh, depressingly somewhat of a need to have people actually do some work on the innovation side uh, and to actually come up with solutions to effectively adapt. Uh, At uh, climate-related issues, especially when the temperatures go up, when there are more adverse weather events, um, you can see that it is important uh, within our line of work of like encouraging innovation, empowering people to do innovation work not just on the product standpoint, but also on the distribution standpoint as well as the pricing. Uh, Like it is important that these innovations are made. It is important that these innovations are able to be uh, provided to people who actually need them
4: beyond those that have.
2: Uh, some level of refuge against uh, the uh, climate related issues that will manifest over time. And that's why I would argue that uh, in addition to uh, talking about people that are going to be uh, excluded from conversations, making sure that they are included in conversations, it is also important uh, from the role of the entrepreneur that uh, not only they make sure that uh, products are in existence, but also uh, uh, to make sure that they can be distributed to people who need them at a price or uh, at a price that they can afford or uh, in a manner where people can actually access them as well. So just wanted to touch on that too.
0: Uh, thank you so much, uh, Irshad. Um, yeah, Lastrina, you're back. <laughs> so uh, I think you uh, got dropped out uh, just now. Can I invite you to maybe finish your uh, thoughts? Uh,
1: yeah, thanks Natalie. Um... So, uh, earlier I was uh, trying to address Irene's question, and I think for me, I saw like two different uh, parts to her question. So, one is on SDG itself, and then the other uh, thing is in terms of the word uh, that uh, Irene highlighted, right, which is uh, more of a demand. Um, so for me, in terms of SDG, in my personal interaction with young people, I think I really hear people saying like, oh, we are trying to address the SDG. Yeah, like, yes, there's conversations around this. Um, and I do see business competitions around this as well. But I think in terms of trying to demand such that um, the government does something about like the entire spectrum. Um, I don't think I've come across someone who really demands um, specifically on the SDGs. Uh, but then, if you look into the specific goals, like maybe they say like okay, like goal thirteen on climate action, or. Um, I think now uh, we are talking a lot on mental health, so maybe goal three on good health and well-being. So maybe there are specific conversations and specific um, demands slash requests on uh, different parties or different organizations to do something about those things. Uh, But it's very specific and it's not necessarily about the entire SDG spectrum, Uh, which I think, again, you know, it's a point for conversation because like what you mentioned at the start of this conversation, uh, when we talk about sustainability and livability, maybe so far uh, most of the conversations that we're having in Singapore now talks about the physical environment, talks about climate change, um, and we rarely talk about all these other strands of sustainability and livability. Uh, livability uh, including clean water and sanitation which maybe it's something that we don't necessarily talk about on a day-to-day basis but it's definitely something that uh, some groups in Singapore are facing as well. Uh, Things like reducing inequality, I think uh, questions like Trin and someone else uh, mentioned in the comment section uh, earlier like how do we actually Bridge all these issues and reduce inequality, uh, which to me, then at the end of the day, it's, it's a very big topic to try to tackle and address. Um, I myself am not sure how what I can do about it, um, and like there's always this question about does the individual fall on me as the indi- uh, uh, does the responsibility. Falls on me as the individual, or you know, should I address groups, or organizations like what INTO is doing with the migrant workers, communities like that, for them to nudge our policymakers to do more. Um, so there's always like all these questions um, that I'm trying to address in my head, right? Uh, but then for me also, then at the end of the day, I have this like reality check. There's only so much we can do, and um, also I'm not sure like how much of what people say in general, uh, will get integrated into the policy discussions or the proposals that will come in later. Um, And for me, this is something that uh, I also was thinking about earlier. I mean, when we talk about sustainability and climate crisis, and I'm just thinking about the different housings we have in Singapore, and how people of different housings and incomes have different capacities to uh, manage um, the climate crisis. And it led me to think about, okay, like because Incho mentioned about the migrant workers, and I was thinking about the different types of housings um, that people were living in. And for me, at the end of the day, this question about like what kind of housing are our migrant workers living in? And is it fair because they are the people building Singapore? They are the ones toiling out in the sun. And why aren't we doing more for them? And so then this whole question about like Singapore is livable. Yes, but only for majority of the people, um, and it's not necessarily true for the entire Singapore. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so
0: much, uh, Lastrina. Um, actually, on the topic of migrant workers, and in fact, uh, we've been talking also about. Uh, uh, the elderly and sustainable practices. I'm enjoying the little chat right in the in the comment section on Facebook, where actually quite a number of them, uh, those who are listening, also pointed out that actually uh, many of the older our older uh, uh, adults, right, uh, has actually in fact very sustainable practices. I think this also leads me to a point I like to invite Inzo and Larry to comment on, right? Uh, because there's sometimes I think uh, um, certain. Uh, um, Impressions, certain, I, I think, uh, uh, heuristics, right, uh, that we use to uh, think about either the, uh, actually, in fact, uh, older adults. Uh, and I know, Ngzo, you've been actually, in the past, you've done uh, quite a lot of work in Dakota Presence uh, with the older um, uh, residents who live in Dakota, who had to leave, uh, who had to move, right. Um, and I know, Larry, you've also actually had quite a number of uh, projects Um, involving actually sustainable practices, uh, actually involving both younger and older adults. Uh, Maybe I can, can I invite both of you to reflect on this point as well?
5: Yeah. Uh, Larry, is it okay if I go first?
3: Yes, please Ingeo, go ahead.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yeah, thanks Nestle. Um, So uh, I have been involved in some uh, elderly work and I think uh, what it reminded me a lot and the motivation of us uh, going into Dakota Crescent back then was actually because my grandmother lived in that neighborhood. Uh, and I saw firsthand of how the neighborhood uh, as a geographical space, although it wasn't very big, uh, but it was ex- extremely important uh, for her because it was where her established uh, social roots and networks uh, was uh, at. Uh, and that also gave rise to uh, the activism that we did in Dakota Crescent. Uh, eventually also petitioning for conservation of the block, uh, but not before we led tours uh, that were co-guided with, by the elderly residents, uh, living there to tell their own story uh, about what life in Dakota Crescent was like. And I think what was interesting about that was how many other Singaporeans, whether young or old, also found it relatable to the stories that they were hearing. Uh, eventually, it was partially successful. Our conservation report that to uh, 6 out of 15 blocks Uh, that were conserved in Dakota Crescent. But it was actually in the relocation process of the elderly uh, who were living in rental flat uh, conditions when the relocation and resettlement happened. Uh, I think what we found interesting was, once again, the representation and the agency of choice. Uh, And that is also, again, a a theme that we've talked about in sustainability and whether uh, the marginalized communities or. Uh, the people on the ground are represented or are at the table when decisions are made concerning uh, their lives and in Dakota question it was also seen firsthand how uh, the practical needs of moving from point A to B were considered but the social needs of this relocation and how life would like be like in point B uh, where they settled down in uh, could also have a uh, huge uh, effect uh, on their well-being. And how you know sometimes these are unquantifiable costs uh, and you know if we define the cost of an elderly uh, social capital in the neighborhood and the number of friends they would have how, how would we measure that uh, and that also gives me uh, thought about how the SDGs are a good framework uh, for understanding some of these metrics and they are good way and tools of measuring uh, what we prioritize is important uh, and sometimes find hard to measure Uh, in the context of elderly or even migrant workers in Singapore. And I think what the SDG really helps uh, scope uh, is the language and the terms that we use uh, to define these uh, causes or issues that we care about. And also the comparative analysis that it offers to other countries where we can also find solutions or strategies that they have done similarly in managing these populations. So it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all, but hopefully this is a, a new paradigm Uh, as to how we approach these issues and how, regardless of whether it's elderly or migrant workers or many other issues in Singapore that we have, uh, the question of representation uh, at the end of the day is also still important. Over to you, Larry.
3: Thanks, Incho. I think you did a very good summary and I think covers all the points I wanted to say. So I think I'll just add on and not repeat those points. Uh, but I do agree with you, Incho, that social needs are really important. In fact, I always hope that, you know, be it designers or, you know, policy makers or change makers, you know, we could actually emphasize more on the process because, you know, even the participatory process, Process of even talking to seniors or getting seniors to contribute ideas that itself actually have a lot of actually improve a lot on you know the elderly well being, and and think also making them feel that you know they have still have what it takes to contribute back to society. You know, just for example, you know we actually co-designed a senior activity center with some seniors in a block of rental flats, and you know to be honest. If you go down to the space, you know, the design looks quite normal, nothing too impressive, so to say, but the process itself means a lot to the seniors because they contributed the ideas to the design. You know, they feel more useful in the entire process. You know, they feel like they still have a purpose in life. And I think all this, you know, addressing their social needs and, you know, making them feel important is really the beauty of, you know, community engagement and not just looking at seniors like, you know, they are just consumers and they just need, we need to do something for them, but in fact, they can do something for themselves. If only we as change makers, you know, are there to provide that platform, you know, for them. And I and I think this applies the same for, you know, the minority groups or even the youth groups, right? I think how the process could better empower them and be sustainable in the long run, that the end product, you know, will be usable and relatable to them. Because at the end of the day, process is also very important, um, as important as the eventual outcome to make our city more livable and lovable. Yeah, so of course, Back to you, Natalie.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, This is a good time now uh, for my next question, uh, which is actually really looking to the year 2020, uh, sorry, 2030 uh, and beyond, which is the time horizon of IPS special scenario planning uh, project uh, reimagining Singapore 2030, right? Um, uh, We'd like to solicit your thoughts, right? Uh, Get your thoughts about what I think uh, actually what do you think are the key trends uh, that will impact your uh, areas of work? And what is one uh, or two key changes uh, you hope to see in your own domain of work? This is really about your perspective about what needs to happen, what needs to be done by 2030. Uh, So maybe I can invite Lastrina to uh, respond first. Yeah.
1: Uh, Thanks Natalie. Um, I think if I were to be Direct um, Being in the environment scene, I think key trends or items that will definitely affect our area of work would be things like what the IPCC says or what Singapore submits to the UNFCCC um, or what MTI says and how the industry transformation map looks like. Um, so I'm not sure if uh, people are following what MTI is doing, um, but they're bu- building up these roadmaps for 23 industries to address issues within those industries and different partnerships with like governments, firms, industries, chambers, and so on. Um, so I think for SYCA at least, or maybe for ground-up in- initiatives uh, in general, key trends like these or key items like this um, are important uh, trends and items to look at. So that we know what where the national agenda and direction is heading towards, and then we can also see how ground up initiatives can support or complement that transformation. Um, And in this regard, I'll just like to emphasize again that I think, you know, in general, stakeholder engagement with all parties, including efforts to increase public awareness um, is a necessary mechanism to help us create this change, um, especially if we want to create change fast in the next decade. Um, That said, I do have to say, Natalie um, and IPS, uh, when I saw this tagline for the research project, right, how will we achieve happiness, prosperity, and progress for our nation uh, in 2030 and beyond, uh, and this is just me speaking as an individual citizen and my personal impression of things, um, my default mode says that I feel assured um, that no matter what the challenges are, including what we are experiencing now because of COVID-19, our government and our civil service and the majority of people will know what to do and they will put in place action plans to address the prosperity and progress part of things. Uh, I'm not sure about the happiness uh, part. And so given this perspective, I think the key trends or items um, such as class or cultural divide or polarization in general um, is also something that ground-up initiatives need to take into account um, when we're doing a work. So for example, um, something that I mentioned earlier is that you know when we talk about climate crisis, I'm thinking about how Uh, people living in different housings and different incomes have different capacities to deal with the weather. Um, I'm thinking about studies that has uh, shown that there's relationships between hot weather and violent behaviors and how that may become pervasive in the future. Um, I'm thinking about the various types of housings that our migrant workers are living in, be it like your purpose-built dorms or your construction temporary quarters. Um, And for me, again, this idea of what can I as an environmentalist or what can I as an individual citizen do to better the lives of of all these other people um, is something that I'm still trying to reconcile, right? And so that question becomes like, how do I reconcile this feeling of how Singapore is going to achieve happiness, how am I going to achieve happiness, and how do I not lose hope over the climate crisis. For me, it's very hard to reimagine Singapore 2030 um, if you know, I don't look at this entire spectrum and see like really who are the people who are going to be affected by all these changes. Yeah. Uh,
0: thanks, Lastrina. Um, yes, what about you? what do you think uh, needs to
2: happen uh, in the next decade? Uh, I think Lestrina really covered a lot of the points uh, very succinctly and very um, directly. Um, I think the only thing that I would um, add to that is, like moving away from like the larger targets that need to be hit, how the ground ground ups are gonna be uh, addressing them. Uh, I, I think one thing that I hope would happen is that uh, people within the younger generation would start to take ownership not just of uh, specific things that are wrong with the world, but also uh, take ownership over their own personal development, over understanding uh, the deep uh, complexities and intricacies behind each of the different issues, uh, but also the um, how do I describe this? Like the technical details behind what is possible to implement and what's not. So that
4: uh, on the
2: one hand we have uh, like pockets of people
4: who are advocating for change, who are pushing important
2: messages to go out there for people
4: uh, with uh, the required capital, or the required power to actually influence some sort of change. But on the
2: other hand, we also do need uh, like a substantial enough um, group who are able to wrangle with the difficult questions associated with how do you. Um, at least from the climate side. I'm not going to comment too much on uh, like so- social issues. I think uh, Intro and Larry will do a much better job than me on that. But I think uh, the whole reason why uh, I've personally gone on the route of innovation is because uh, on the one hand, there is right, there is wrong, there are things we need to do, there are things that should be done. But uh, there also needs to be groups of people and hopefully increased number of people who are not driven by the amount of money that they can make from the company that they work for. But are driven by uh, very um, fascinating technical challenges that actually have uh, certain outcomes that they will be able to push. Uh, That's what I hope uh, for in 2020. How that happens, uh, at least for me, um, the way I see it is that all people need to engage in entrepreneurship because that's really really the fast-track way to understand what can work, what cannot work. And the way that you learn is that it slaps you on the face. uh, there definitely are uh, different avenues that, that can be done either through, uh,
4: like I was mentioning or like that, uh, there was a mention of,
2: um, I, I think in the chat, like integrating climate uh, awareness at a younger age, uh, and like a, a lot of these uh, existing initiatives, like more, more support should be uh, given to them so that people are empowered to actually find and implement solutions. That's my perspective on it. Thanks.
0: Uh, thanks, Yashat. Um, can I invite Inso, uh to share uh, you know, your aspirations, your um, your thoughts on what needs to happen, uh, what needs mm-hmm. to be done in the next decade?
5: Thanks, Natalie. Uh, so I also really agree with uh, Latina's points. And I think uh, hitting uh, right on the head, uh, what it's uh, really about uh, when we're talking about uh, happiness, prosperity, and also the emphasis on happiness. Um, We also, uh, she also mentioned about the integration of uh, issues, right, where we are not just looking at them in their individual silos, but we are looking at uh, climate change relative to also other issues and how uh, these correlations could also accumulate to a larger uh, storm that's growing ahead. So I think in 2030, uh, for me personally, and the issues that I work on, uh, I feel like there are always uh, something that uh, the person on the street feels uh, could be quite inaccessible to them. Uh, and for me, I, I, I do tours for a living and I, I hear uh, time and time again about people who have come on a tours and are surprised uh, about what they have learned, uh, or they are surprised that you know, the interconnectivity that I mentioned uh, could be drawn in this manner and that uh, at the end of the day, you know, we are all part of the problem as well as, well as also the part of the solution. And I think this is an important dimension to consider uh, as much as we uh, champion causes, as much as we advocate uh, to people outside uh, or as an organization. Uh, but one really important thing is also how that starts at home. Uh, the people around us uh, and, and the, the family that we have, our friends, the conversations that we have on a day-to-day basis to mainstream uh, these issues and to mainstream these conversations that should be happening on the larger Uh, scheme, whether government or institutional. Uh, I I think what Lashina also mentioned about the the ITMs, the industry transformation map, uh, they do chart a very good uh, pathway of what the sectors will look like in 2030. Uh, Of course, notwithstanding how the pandemic has affected uh, and shifted some of these ITM targets, uh, but I think the root uh, questions that we have uh, in some of the solutions and how we have uh, approached it, for example, uh, the approach of using technology to replace productivity and the justification of how, uh, you know, in 2030, that will reduce the amount of manpower that we require. Uh, we have seen uh, from the pandemic how the shortfall of migrant workers currently uh, and the cascading effect that it has on the projects and development uh, will not just end at construction, but it will actually cascade uh, to many other sectors that it is intertwined and connected with. So I think it's also a call for uh, this conversation about. Uh, The the redefining the targets in 2030 and also uh, kind of looking at uh, the concepts of, you know, whether as much as we can prioritize economic growth, there's a time to look at perhaps a concept like degrowth, where we reprioritize our assets and resources to develop social and environmental capital rather than economic growth. Uh, and and that's really important conversations where platforms like this uh, have, and I can see that happening in the comments discussion as well. Uh, and I'm really happy to be in this panel of sustainability, not just in the climate context, but really from the all of humankind and Singapore context.
0: Yeah, thanks, So I really like uh, also the points you raised about uh, how it can begin with a conversation, right? Um, and uh, uh, can I, on this point, uh, invite Larry uh, to reflect on that question about, uh, you know, what needs to happen in 2030?
3: Yeah, and I think I totally agree. With you. I think Injong's speech uh, really hit a lot of me. I think perhaps because I think uh, we do very similar things. So I, I really agree, you know, that social capital needs to be emphasized uh, in 2030, right? It's no longer just about economic prosperity or you know, development, but I think it's time as a developed nation, we should start looking to that. And I think moving forward, I think we really need more platform to actually talk about hard truth. Because, you know, the fact is that you you may not want to talk about inequality or racial issues or environmental issues or avoid the problem. But, you know, the world is getting more and more complex. We have more of this platform online in social media that talk about it, right? So not talking about it is not going to be the way forward in 2030. And I really feel that we need more platforms for different people from different sectors, different stakeholders to come together Understanding one another viewpoints and then co-create solutions, and I think that is the way forward. You know, really for policies to work, and for that to change, and for that to happen, I think government leaders and institutions really need to walk the talk, and I think really change the attitude, and really start looking at you know citizens as you know valuable assets that are able to contribute positively and co- and I think uh, productively right to this entire process about sustainability and livability. Only with this change of mindset, you know, then I think all this change are possible. But I'm pretty confident, you know, I think the government is moving towards this direction. And I think we just need to make sure that, you know, we stay humble, you know, not looking at engagement and community engagement as just lead service or for show thing, you know, or tokenism engagement, but really start looking and, you know, looking at policies with a more human aspect to it, rather than just, uh, you know economic aspect and lens uh, to all these policies that's going to roll out in the future. But I'm pretty positive, you know, we change makers like, uh, you know, LaSrina, Ishrad, and Injo, and, you know, many others out there. You know, I think this is definitely going to work and I'm very positive for 2030.
0: Uh, thank you, Larry. Um, actually, it's quite amazing that all of you, actually, I think in your own sharing and reflections, are kind of speaking to uh, something that LaSrina so eloquently uh. Put across that uh, while we are uh, somewhat uh, uh, confident about uh, our our sort of uh, ability to tackle the prosperity and the progress, right? Uh, what is happiness all about, and how do we get there? Is something that's uh, you know is a bit uh, less clear. Uh, then and that brings me to one of the questions that uh, come came up right uh, in the comments uh, from uh, Christopher. Um, and uh, so Christopher asked, right, uh, yeah, because, uh, and he, he says that uh, we can more readily measure prosperity and progress, but it's so much harder to measure happiness. Um, uh, so the question is, what will contribute to Singaporeans, uh happiness? Um, yeah, in your opinion, right? What, what kind of... Uh, um, factors, what kind of uh, things, right, will contribute to Singapore's happiness, uh, based on uh, your own area of work, and um, I, I think this also, I think, uh, brings me to one uh, question I'd like to just ask at the same time. Um, yeah, in actually, uh, you, you guys actually really shared so much about uh, all the work you've been doing, right? But surely there will, there may be um, uh, actually people who may have resisted the changes you were trying to bring about, uh, the changes you, that you wanted to make, how do you actually handle these uh, problems that came up, these challenges right, that, that came up? Uh, maybe I can invite Larry uh, to go first.
3: <laughs> wow, okay, I'm going first this time. Right, <laughs> sure. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I think uh, maybe I'll address the last question first, right, about people resisting change. I think it is very common. I mean, it's it's inbuilt in our nature, right? Humans, if things are working well, why change, right? I think human beings are naturally resistant to change. But for me, as a, I mean, as a, you know, working in a non-profit, you know, sometimes I always tell myself, you know, I may not be able to make everybody in the world or everybody in the country change their mentality but as long as you have one person who is willing to try something and you know be crazy with you and change it I think you have succeeded you know even though it's a very small change and I think these kind of things don't happen overnight right so I would really want to kind of appeal to change makers out there or people who are trying to make a change you know do not give up you know really do not through this heart and thick skin, right? If things don't change, it's fine. We walk the top, we try again. And even if we can make 1% change, that is, a, that is really a win, right? And I think um, that that for me is the attitude that kept me going, you know, even though sometimes people may not agree with a process, but yeah, it's okay. We can try something else and try until we get to a common consensus, right? Um, And what was the other question again? Sorry, Natalie, I didn't get the other question regarding from Christopher, right?
0: Yes. Uh, in your opinion, what does what contributes to Singaporeans' uh, sense of happiness?
3: Well, I, I think that is uh, actually a very broad question. I think probably need an uh, entire you know two years research. I think to to answer that question because uh, just to share. I think we at PID, uh, we have been actually working on a project to, you know, understand what makes people love Singapore and what do people love about Singapore. And I think in that study, um, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things that uh, we found out as well, uh, which I think we'll be sharing shortly. So do take a, do keep a lookout for that. Uh, It's under the Design Singapore Council Study on lovability. I think you guys, uh, I can provide a link later for you guys to take a look. Uh, But what exactly, I think, but from the study, a snippet of what I found out at least is that I think, to make people happy, I think people will need to feel loved, right? I mean, you need to feel loved by the government. You need to feel heard, you know, about your commands on what this city is about. You need to be able to make a change in a place that you love. And I think to me, that is the basics of uh, being happy and, um, you know, to be able to feel like you're part of a home, you're part of a planning process, right? And not just taken as an economic tool or a figure in a government statistics. So I think for me... Um, that is what happiness is about for Singaporeans, at least from my limited knowledge of what I do in PID. Uh, but of course, I'm happy to hear what the rest think. So I think I'll pass the time over to Injo, <laughs> and I'll see what he has to say about it.
5: We seem to be moving in a certain order. Thanks, Larry. So I, I think on your point on happiness, uh, definitely looking forward to the results of uh, your study. Um, for me personally, I feel like... Uh, What's really key to happiness is uh, it's, it's really how we get there and uh, the, the kind of priorities that we have in our lives, and uh, the kind of, and, and that's also informed a lot by the jobs that we are in. Uh, and in terms of the labor and work that we do, uh, are we appreciated? Uh, are we, uh, do we find it meaningful and purposeful? Uh, and, and that's what I'm really thankful for in for, for my work. Uh, but I can't say, say the same for the rest of my peers, you know, perhaps who might be in there. Uh, meaningful or fruitful jobs. Uh, but I think all work is work and we really have to appreciate uh how uh for happiness to happen, uh, sometimes it's also uh uh being one and, and being being joyful and being able to have that joy in your workplace. And I, I think that's perhaps what might be a compromise. Uh not all of us might be able to find a job that we love or like uh, but the other question is you know, why do we have to work or what, what do we do work for? Uh, do we do it to pay off our bills, settle our debts, and uh, aspire for a certain kind of house that we live in? Um, and at the end of that is also re-questioning uh, how society has conditioned us to kind of take the step uh, in, in our lives towards uh, the next phase. Uh, for example, I just got married and there's a lot of to, to think about uh, in terms of the next uh, step and I like that the government has a life app to help you uh, kind of plan ahead now uh, They can input so many key performance indicators of your life and sort out kind of what the future could like and what you can afford or what you can't afford so that's really interesting for me uh, but does it help me feel more happy or assured you know I think that still remains the question uh, the meaning of my labor and you know how many of my peers uh, are also truly not that happy in their work so I think that's a big part of uh, what we spend our time on. Uh, and That's something to be really into. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Jingzhou. Uh I think uh, what both you and Larry uh, highlighted is really, I think, the importance of uh, process, right? Uh, the importance of uh, actually seeing things as a journey. Um, and uh, actually, yeah, not just drive ourselves towards achieving KPIs, right, uh, and outcomes uh, that may be very quantitative, but um, um, that journey is also actually equally, if not more important. And, 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 um, uh, and also, I think, rethinking how we define happiness for ourselves um, and for our communities, right? Um, uh, yeah, Ashad and Lastrina, would you like to add on to anything
1: to this discussion? Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> the, the happiness um, question is difficult Let's, you know, you want to go first this is hard
1: yeah <laughs> just briefly touching so there were two questions right so one was by Abdul Jasid, oh sorry abdul basit jastra on uh how do we manage people who resist change and resist new ideas um and the other one by christopher like how do you actually measure happiness um so to uh abdul basit jastra's uh, question actually I was like in terms of resisting change and idea, I was thinking of the term like negotiation. And when I think of negotiation, um, I was thinking about Tommy Cole and like his tips on handling negotiation. So I think like part of that process, um, I mean, there's there's, uh, like some steps, but part of the process includes uh, building common uh, facts with each other. Um, uh, Part of that process includes looking into each other's cultural box and understanding um, what we relate to Um, and also part of that also requires us to have some emotional intelligence um, as to how the other person is thinking, right? Um, And I think uh, part of that negotiation tips that Ambassador Tomiko was sharing was also like, you must always have a win-win kind of solution Um, if someone is compromising then you know obviously you're losing something at some point so it must be a fair and balanced kind of negotiation for both parties and so when I'm just looking at that negotiation tips and I'm just looking back at uh, Abdul uh, Basid Jasra's question I think that can also be adapted to how we talk to people um, and how we try to facilitate conversations which may be difficult right for either parties Um, and as to Christopher's uh, question on measuring happiness. So this is totally random, but I recently got uh, into onto TikTok uh, and I saw uh, someone sharing that her professor encouraged her to check out this uh, website. It's an online portal called Authentic Happiness website uh, developed by the University of Pennsylvania uh, based on the works of Martin Seligman. Um, and so there's a few tests you can do, um, they ask different types of questions, different angles, and basically from that, if you are someone who wants to quantify things, um, I think that, you know, it's a good online uh, resource portal to check out and try to quantify happiness, uh, but also just taking a step back, I think um, in general, happiness is not something that we can easily quantify, and I think like Natalie also mentioned this uh, behind the scenes, it's more of a Uh, journey, right? Um, And so it's not necessarily something where you can see uh, a tangible outcome uh, as compared to, you know, just appreciating and enjoying the journey. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to add on those thoughts. Yeah.
0: Uh, Yesha, what about you? Uh, Maybe if uh, you like, you can choose to tackle that um, uh, change-making question instead.
2: Uh, I think I'll focus more on the change-making question, but I think maybe to touch on the happiness, I, I, I don't think I have much more,
4: anything more
2: to add compared to what the, the other three have shared so far. Um, although one, one thing that I would want to uh, come back to with related to my work is that um, some aspect of happiness can be found through agency. And one of the reasons why, uh, even though on the climate side, uh, it does seem that the situation seems quite bleak, uh, I think one very big player in uh, keeping keep, keeping people going is uh, providing them the opportunity as well as the knowledge that it is possible to do something. And I do believe that uh, it is important that for people to if not be happy, but to be content, like that agent, that agency piece is important. So I just wanted to chime in on that. Uh, as for um, the question about like during the change making journey, like how did we,
4: um, how how did we kind of respond to people
2: who resisted to our efforts? To be honest, uh, the moment you flap the word innovation on something, people tend to give you a little bit more of a pass compared to
4: if you're trying to do work within the activism space. So I do echo uh, last sentiments when uh, she
2: gave uh, SG Climate Rally a shout out. Uh, It is definitely not uh, easy work that they do, especially because uh, you are speaking uh, about certain issues and certain uncomfortable truths that do need to be out there. Uh, With that being said, um, for us, when we we don't think about uh, people who have resisted the work that we do, And it's more about the entrepreneurs from all over Southeast Asia that we are um, trying to guide to a point where they can actually do uh, the innovation work that is important. Uh, To us, resisting means uh, finding a point of leverage and really leveraging upon uh, whatever um, sources of, um, I I wouldn't go as far as to say power, but like finding that leverage is something that is very, very important for us. Uh, From YSIC's perspective, one of the reasons why we went from a holistic innovation for everything SDG related to looking at food and agriculture, clean energy and circular economy is because we wanted to have uh, the leverage to say that uh, we specialize in these areas and it's not uh, a specialization based on a surface level understanding of uh, food and agriculture, clean energy and circular economy. And when we cascade this down to the entrepreneurs that go through our program, Uh, For us, it's very important that, number one, they know exactly the problem that they're trying to solve, the stakeholders that they're trying to work with, and uh, to a large degree, how are things going to be distributed and how are they going to both create value, but also have a plan to actually capture that value. So all of them uh, kind of coming together is what we believe would give people that are trying to do something that is meaningful, that is impactful, some level of leverage in order to resist. And that's very, very important to me. Yep.
0: So, actually, um, uh, under the same context of talking about uh, what needs to happen by uh, 2030, right, uh, there is a question from Eugene, um, uh, and he asks, uh, What space is there in uh, the SDG uh, to raise the question of waste um, of every form, every level, um, uh, actually looking to 2030? I guess the question is about um, how do we tackle uh, this problem about waste? And I guess we can think about different types of uh, waste here, uh, especially in the context of Singapore, as well as the region. Yes,
2: sir? That's a big question. <laughs> All right, so
0: um,
2: maybe to kind of give a short, perhaps not particularly informed answer, the way that I take a look at waste is, uh, on the one hand, how do you manage it? And on the other hand, how do you utilize uh, materials or like uh, byproducts of the waste in order to do something that might be valuable with it or at the very least try to uh, ensure that uh, negative externalities do not actually result from the waste actually um, being in a landfill or being burnt um, uh, and releasing like toxic or uh, greenhouse gases. So one of the reasons why uh, from uh, YSIC's perspective when we look at uh the circular economy and food and
4: agriculture, as well as technology, coming Uh, and uh,
2: it's also worth mentioning that a lot of people from my team have gone on to a, uh, another entity called Interseed, where we empower uh entrepreneurs from all over Southeast Asia, not through a program but through a platform. Uh, the reason why uh we take a look at uh these three areas is because when it comes to tackling waste, you want to think about number one whether or not uh, whatever solution that you're trying to do is contributing to greenhouse gas emissions in any way. Number two, uh, are you actually contributing to pollution in any way, whether it's microplastics, whether it's uh, toxic pollution in the air that doesn't necessarily have an effect on on climate, uh, but it does have an effect on human health. And number three, are you able to
4: continue
2: uh, providing the resources that are required to people? So instead of asking like, what are the, um, things that can be done about the waste problem. I would encourage people who are interested in waste to number one, look at uh, specific uh, material, specific items that are currently being wasted. Look at uh, from a life cycle uh, analysis point of view, like what is happening to them, uh, what's happening to every step. And number three, uh, look, at the, uh, look at the system and think about ways that they can be improved. I would go as far as to say that in Singapore, it is a little bit challenging. Uh, particularly because a lot of it is centralized as an individual actor, it is going to be a little bit more difficult to um, do something about it. Uh, not impossible, but it's a little bit more challenging. And this is where I kind of want to also club the rest of the region, because Singapore doesn't uh, exist in isolation, like there are problems that are going on all over, and this is where like a keen understanding of both uh, the material perspective from a social capital perspective, like understanding where the waste is coming from, what is happening in the first place, like get, getting to know people that are engaging with it both as people causing the problem as well as people that are trying to fix it, that are confirmed people trying to fix it already, um, and understanding that there are certain systems where you as an individual or a small entity can make an intervention and there are some instances where you don't. I, I think that the whole waste management problem should not just be seen in terms of like, oh how do we Fix things in terms of Singapore, 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 Singapore right now. Uh, you've got to look at it from a bigger perspective. And from there, uh, when you find problems that you can actually take action upon, uh, that's the point at which you go
4: take action. So that's my perspective on it. Uh, you know, do you want to add on to that? You might have certain points of view. Um,
1: yeah, maybe, Natalie, would you be able to repeat the question? Uh, I'm not sure if oh, I, uh, I got the sure. angle right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think the question is on waste, and how do we, different types of waste, right, like uh, food waste, and uh, hazardous waste, and so on, uh, different types of waste, and what we can do about it.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, this is, uh, not, not that it's hard for me to talk, lah, but like, uh, I think in general, you know, in Singapore, when we look at things, um, we do have the uh, zero waste master plan. master plan which we introduced in 2019, looking at uh, closing the three loops, right? The food, electrical, um, and electronic equipment, uh, packaging, which includes plastics, right? So there's already a a master plan. Um, And then there's efforts by National Environment Agency to have uh, like uh, public outreach efforts Um, I think earlier on, we had one on food, and then subsequently, we had one on disposables, like how to reduce excessive usage of plastics uh, consumption. Um, I think uh, then this year, we also had NEA launching um, a nationwide e-waste management system, I think last month in July. Um, So at the national level, I feel like there's already a lot of things being done, and it's a matter of giving it some time for it to translate. Uh, to the community, so that people uh, know what to do, uh, where they can recycle, um, and just in general be part of this circular uh, economy movement. Uh, that said, um, I think what I'm more interested in is less of the waste side of things, uh, more on the consumption side of things, because I think in general, with a capitalist um, slash consumerist society that we are. Um, our consumption is increasing and consequently, you know, the waste will increase as well. Um, And yes, people are trying to tackle the whole loop and try to minimize waste at source. But I also feel like at the end of the day, if we don't talk about consumption and how we are as a society, then you know, all these other uh, conversations about waste and whatnot, it will just be a secondary conversation. We're not really tackling the root of the problem, which is our consumption as a society. Um, and I myself, I'm a part of this, right? I find Shopee so convenient. I'm on it quite regularly. Um, and in my household, uh, we regularly buy the 1.5-liter uh, sweetened drink bottles. Um, And, you know, these are the little things that I do um, and I consciously do knowing that I will produce waste at the end of the day, but I still do it. Um, And so it it needs a bit of discipline as well on my end to monitor my own consumption and my own waste production. Right. Um, And so when I look at that from that perspective and I try to imagine like, okay, if this is how other people are thinking and this is how they're behaving, then the amount of waste, in the long run, we will still be producing waste. Um, And so from that individual perspective, I think there's a lot of things that people can do. um, And it starts with what's happening at home. And I'm guilty of this. I I still haven't corrected my own behavior. Uh, But definitely things like if you really need to buy something, um, do you really need to take that plastic bag? Uh, Things like online shopping, uh, which is very convenient nowadays, delivery, like online food delivery. Um, these are maybe daily habits or daily actions that we may not be uh, so aware of that we don't question um, that does have its effects in the long run. Um, and it's something that I feel people can do to try to minimize their uh, waste production. Yeah, uh,
0: thank you Laskrina. Actually, this is uh, your point about consumerism. In fact, I, as you were speaking, it reminds me of the, the earlier conversation we had about happiness, uh, because definitely for many of us, consumerism is a way of living our lives. Um, and uh, the, the, there's a larger question to be asked about how we can rethink that. Um, I'm aware of the time, about one and a half hours has lapsed We have about 15 minutes or... Uh, slightly less than 15 minutes to go. Uh, so my final question for all of you um, is uh, to ask you to zoom out, right? Uh, and uh, think about uh, what kinds of, um, you know, uh, factors or, or things that needs to happen um, uh, to bring about the actually impactful, positive uh, social change. not just in your own domain of uh, work and activism, but also in the context of Singapore. Now, I think this, uh, you know, converges quite nicely to one of the questions posed earlier on uh, what kinds of culture of dialogue and discourse uh, that needs to happen, right, uh, to address the issue of not just environmental sustainability, uh, but also social sustainability. Uh, I will go in the order that we started with. Uh, so maybe I can invite Lastrina uh,
1: to unmute yeah, and share. Yeah. Uh, thanks Natalie. Um, so this question as to what processes uh, we need to have to create that change. And I'm just recalling some of the points that um, I see Satya, Basit, Christopher has mentioned. Uh, Larry also talked about platforms to talk about hard truths. Um, And so maybe as a closure for my end, um, I just wanted to share two works that I I came across this year. And I was just thinking about it like IPS is an academic platform, right? So maybe need to share something academic. Uh, So uh, one uh, piece of work that I really liked uh, was this piece by Belisha Tio. She's a PhD student um, at NYU. um, And she wrote this piece, which was published on Academia SG. Um, and it was titled "Science-Based Does Not Mean Value-Neutral," making the case for broader public participation in climate governance. Um, I, I can share the link in the uh, comment section later. But I just and it's a long piece, right? It's on Academia. Sg. Uh, but what I wanted to highlight, maybe to sort of uh, summarize this thing, is what she wrote um, as her uh, ending in her ending paragraph is that. Uh, She said, science can, at the very best, tells us the consequence of our actions and inactions, but choosing what to do is shaped by value systems, including what we take to be moral and just. Um, So I'm just recalling all these conversations we had that's happening in the climate scene, the social entrepreneurship, uh, migrant scene in the uh, space, uh, space making scene. And I'm just thinking about The negotiations and compromise that different parties have to um, experience and maybe what we need more of uh, is these conversations around our values, right, and not so much about the goals and expectations um, and the outcome. Um, So that is the first piece of work that I wanted to share. Um, the second one is the research project by Common Purpose. Uh, so common Purpose it's a UK headquartered not-for-profit organization um, and they have various programs. Um, the one that I really like is this initiative called Conversations with Purpose. Um, and in their report, they make this distinction between outcome driven conversation, which tends to to be oriented towards resolution um, and the purpose driven conversation. Uh, which is less uh, affected by the immediate outcome and more for the bigger bigger purpose, right? And so people talk about like what Larry mentioned, the hard truths like social justice, personal rights, um, environment, culture. And I think maybe what we need to see more of happening in the next 10 years really is to have these uh, purpose-driven conversations um, and to just have that platform for us to enable stronger social discourse, um, and transform society in a way that addresses the puzzle that IPS has put up, which is, how will we achieve happiness, prosperity, and progress for our nation in 2030 and beyond? Um, and maybe with these kinds of values and purpose-driven conversation, we'll address that strength on happiness a bit better. Yeah. Thank you, Lastrina. Irshad? Sure.
2: Um, Okay, I'll make it brief because uh, to to, to be very frank, like I'm not entirely sure what uh, specific factors are required in order to bring impactful social change. What I will say is that um, I think for change makers within the space, like understanding that their issue doesn't exist in isolation, something that is
4: really, really important. Um, So, for example, if they are trying to address uh, certain environmental issues.
2: I, I do feel that amongst the change makers that I have uh, interacted with, like there isn't really a
4: case where people
2: uh, think that oh my issue is the most important and like everything else doesn't matter. Thankfully, like it is the case that people do understand that there are other issues that matter. Uh, however, um, if there is one thing that I would uh, hope for change makers to actually uh, look at is uh, to understand the
4: effects of their actions uh, when it comes to uh, if they're trying to do social good, like, are there uh, still effects that they should be taking note of? Or, if people are trying to drive environmental change, in- is there something that uh, they can do in order to um,
2: ensure that the uh, so- social cohesion or like, uh, so- social aspects are not being mm-hmm. followed on?
4: And I think I'll give one example. Uh, within our 2018 batch, uh, we did have um, two Solutions that kind of stick in my head. One of them is a uh, solution
2: related to um, integrating technology into irrigation processes uh, in farms in Indonesia, and then the other was about um, trying to take um, in like crafts that indigenous people use in order to
4: uh, increase their economic viability
2: as a village because like they, they have a certain good at making, and uh, these are Um, Things that can be, in their mind at least, like marked up to uh, Mm -hmm.
4: allow the social enterprise itself to make a profit, but also uh, give some sort of uh,
2: some resources and payback to the uh, indigenous communities. And I think uh, one of the things that I really admired both of these teams uh, doing is that they actually went on and did the thing. And as a result, they got a first hand understanding of. Uh, the potential effects that their innovations had on the world, and I think uh, as much as we shouldn't be using uh, like farmers as well as like indigenous people as uh, like a classroom of sorts. Uh, on the flip side, I do believe that it is important for people to actually engage with uh,
4: solutions rather than uh, purely look at it from a very theoretical perspective.
2: It is okay to make mistakes. Uh, it is, and and I hope that as a society, like we. Uh, continue to s- try to strike the balance between making mistakes but also not causing some sort of catastrophic uh, effect. But um, I do err on the side of uh, encouraging more young people to actually go out there uh, beyond uh, trying to strive for a career in the private sector, a career in policy, uh, or writing, uh, writing things about how things can change. I do hope more people will actually go out and actually try to drive the change themselves.
0: Thank you so much. I think uh, you highlighted that value of partnership and working together, uh, but also working with communities, not just to get things from them, but also actually uh, to ensure uh, some outcomes, right? Uh, and uh, solutions that will impact them positively. So thank you so much, Ashad. Uh Inzo?
5: Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I, I do really resonate with the points uh, a shot mentioned about the importance of uh, education and also the potential career pathways that one can choose when we are young. Uh, I think the beauty of uh, being young is uh, in, in this time and age is uh, that one can really consider uh, career pathways that are very different uh, from the generation before. And also many jobs have been carved up uh, out of passion and purpose where uh, these intersect. So uh, impactful social change, I think to me, it looks like uh, one that is uh, really up to our imaginary nations on how we make it to be. Uh, And for example, the pandemic that has really provided this uh, paradigm shift of how some of these issues previously, uh, which existed in their own silos, uh, today has been brought to the fore. I think one key issue that uh, we all really Uh, also need to uh, look at is also the context of mental health and well-being and how as individuals uh, advocating for change, it could be a very painful and tiring uh, work and uphill battle. But I think what's really encouraging is uh, to see an ecosystem of people uh, rising to the fore, whether in the silos or the issues that we work within, but also encouraging of collaborations and partnerships of sectors that maybe outside of uh, what we previously uh, seen as uh, part of the issue or not. And that, that really also comes to mind uh, the importance of good leaders and how policies also uh, be churned out from uh, what people demand these leaders to also uh, create and prioritize on. And I think that's uh, where conversations like this, uh, making it to the mainstream, can really help uh, see out these issues. And for many of us who are uh, here on the panel or even listening in our own small ways to really be a part of this change uh, that isn't something that we can plan for really, but in the case of climate emergency, one that is uh, sprung upon us. uh, And the question is really whether we'll be prepared when that comes. Uh, And I am always really heartened to be in the ecosystem of Singapore, uh, appreciating the kind of networks and uh, opportunities that we have, the exposure to issues that we can See and perceived from arm's length, uh, but really the importance of immersing within the issue and uh, to, to have a, a stake in it uh, and to also uh, put our money where our mouth is uh, when we say that we care for some of these causes. And, yep, that's uh, how I perceive uh, impactful social change to be in the next uh, nine years to 2030. Thanks, Nathalie.
0: Thank you, Into. Uh, last but definitely not least, Larry.
3: Thank you so much. Uh, I think, you know, the three speakers have done so much in summarizing. I'll just keep it short. Uh, I think for me, at least, I think in in addressing um, social sustainability, uh, I will really think that as a society and also for institutions, I think it's really about embracing diversity. You know, moving forward, I think we embrace diversity and place more emphasis on equity. You know, I think only with this change of mindset, you know, then I think we can talk about change, right? And I think it's also very important to empower our citizens and also to, I think, allow our agencies to, you know, place more emphasis on citizen mental well-being and social well-being, Um, you know, in terms of on-block, for example, and even other policies. I think that is the way to go in 2030. And I think I also made a note over here, um, you know, it's really about for us embracing this kind of messiness and uncertainty, you know, in, in our society, you know, moving forward, we really can't escape from hard truth, like I mentioned earlier. And I think it's really about embracing such debates. And I think it's got kind of differences in society. Then I think we can talk about happiness. And, you know, in 2030, I think, if all these changes can take place, you know, gradually and for us as a society to be more democratic and talk about all these things, I think I'm pretty positive, you know, Singapore would be able to achieve a happy society. And I'm really looking forward to that and working together with, you know, various change makers and agencies in making that happen. So yeah, thank you so much, Natalie and IPS.
0: Uh, thank you, Larry. What a positive and impactful message for all of us. Uh, now, the, our time is up. Uh, I want to take a moment to thank all of you uh, who have been listening uh, and, and staying engaged and thank you for all your questions and comments. I'm sorry that we're not able to uh, attend to every single one of them, uh, but we will try to uh, uh, attend to some of the questions after the event um, uh, on our own, right? Uh, there will be a, a round of uh, lightning <laughs> Q&A that we will put out as a recording uh, um, on IPS uh, website and uh, Facebook page. Uh, now, I um, We'd like to hear your views on the event. Uh, So there is a link that I believe has already been posted in the comment section. Uh, We'd like to get your views about, uh, get your feedback about uh, this forum. Uh, So please, uh, we would very much appreciate it if you can click on it and submit your feedback on the forum. Uh, Please also save uh, uh, the date uh, for our next and final forum of this series on reimagining Singapore forum. And this will be happening on the 31st August, Tuesday at the same time, uh, 4 o'clock, and you will end about 5.45 as well. And this forum uh, will address a different topic on corporate policies and culture, also a very timely topic. So I invite all of you to join us on that day. So with that, uh, thank you all very much. And thank you, um, Lastrina, Ashad, Inzo, and Larry for spending this afternoon with us.